uh, as uh, some of you guys may know, uh, recently had a kid um, and uh, it's been five months since and, and uh, in, in the five months since our, our child's um, welcome, our dog has become very neglected. Um, all the attention that we used to give to our dog, Watson, uh, has now been diverted uh, to this kid and uh, we don't have much time to give to him. We can't take him off for walks uh, because the kid demands everything. Uh, oddly enough, uh, the two of them are not best friends, and I'm not sure why. Uh, but recently, uh, we noticed there was this weird lump in Watson's mouth where uh, there's just this this growth of tissue hanging out. Uh, and, you know, it's a little bit scary looking, so we took him to the doctor. Uh, they, they removed it, uh, did a biopsy, and uh, a week later, the results came out. And the doctors emailed us, and we we're like, hey, bad news, it's cancer. Um, and it's not the, it's not the benign kind it's, it's the type that's spreading and will likely take your dog's life in a, the next few months, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, as soon as we heard the diagnosis, uh, my wife and I were like, oh, well, this changes things. Um, how will we change our plans for, for our dog Watson? Uh, now, now when we go home, it's like, Hey, you want peanut butter? Sure. Have peanut butter. You want my hot dog? You can have all the hot dogs in the fridge. Like take them all. It's fine. Um, and now we're like, okay, let's plan out time to take him out for walks. Even if we're tired, uh, we'll strap the kid to our chest and we'll just take the kid, the dog out. It's it's his last days, right? Uh, it's maybe not that dramatic. He maybe have has a few months left. Uh, but we recognize with this diagnosis that his end is clear. And as a result, it has now reshaped how we view his future, how how we want to spend our time with him. His future has affected how we live with him today. And, you know, Paul wants us to understand, as you've been with us, uh, as we've been going over 2 Corinthians, Paul also wants us to understand how we view our future affects how we live today. How we uh, uh, view ourselves as jars of clay, right? To show our fragility, our, our mortality as humans, how our days are numbered. And in fact, will come to an end. And if that is the case Right? If that's just the case that, that we are mortal beings, then how we view our future affects how we live today. Our future is not something that we just consider a death, right? We have this tendency to think, well, I'll think about it when I'm on my deathbed. I'll think about it when my days are, are clear, when I'm about to go, then I'll, I'll spend my time thinking about what is eternal. Now, right now, I got to get done what needs to be done, right? That, that tends to be the human tendency. And yet Paul says that cannot be the case because as we learned last week, the things that we see are transient, meaning they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He, he wants to change our perspective, look to the future and let that shape how we live today. See, the Christian is to be set apart from the world why do we waste our time focusing on things that don't last? Paul wants to challenge us, focus on what will last forever. And so we're going to look at three ways today from the passage, three ways in which we are cha changed and challenged and transformed to be people of the future, people of faith, and people of fear. Three Fs, so easy to remember. Future, faith, and fear. And I'll, I'll explain what that means in just a little bit. So first off, people of the future. Look at verse 1 with me again of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
All right, so Paul continues his thought from last week, uh, from the last passage. He ties us back uh, to this uh, very fragile picture of a jar made of clay. And this uh, passage, he he uses the imagery of a tent uh, as a representation of our earthly bodies, our human bodies, which makes sense because if you know uh, anything about Paul, he was a tent maker. That was his profession. He was a tent maker by trade and he recognized more than anyone that tents are a temporary place. You don't buy a tent to set up your permanent home. Uh, it's vulnerable to the elements. I mean, uh, a few weeks ago, we had 30 mile per hour winds. Or those a few days ago, it blew over the fence in our backyard. If you lived in a tent during that time, you would wake up in Pacifica the next morning. Your tent is not going to hold up. All right. And they have to be replaced over time. And so he uses the tent metaphor very aptly to describe our temporary, fragile bodies. But then he contrasts this with a building from God. And it's important to, to recognize, he, he says this building from God is not a house made with hands, but rather it is a house made by God. Because he also recognizes that a house built by man, though longer lasting than a tent, is also temporary. And so he says it's made by God. It's eternal in the heavens, and it's an important distinction. And I know this because my wife and I just moved into a newly remodeled downstairs place for my parents' home, which is a luxury to have in San Francisco. Like we poured our life savings into this thing so we have a place to live and don't have to pay rent anymore. And yet, if you ask my wife, I spent my first month in my new house looking for every crack, every imperfection. And when I dropped my water bottle, I was like, wow, I know how much those wood floors cost. That hurt me, right? And she's just like, can you not just enjoy what... The Lord has blessed you with, and I was like, huh. "Correct, all right." But even even a permanent house, man-made, is temporary; it will not last. And so Paul points us: look to the eternal home in heaven awaiting us. Look to the resurrection body, is what he's saying. Look to the body that will be remade by God, redeemed by God, the permanent home that we get to look forward to in the end—a body that will no longer suffer from the effects of sin and death. You see, Paul longs for this home. He longs for it. In verse 2, he changes his metaphors. For in this tent, this, this earthly body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Right, he's changing it now to, to putting on clothes. He's longing to put on this new heavenly dwelling. And verse 3, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so it's important to make the distinction here. Paul is not dissatisfied with life. He's not saying we should all die, but he's saying that what is to come is significantly better, exponentially better. It is exceedingly better. That's why he says we should be further clothed. Not that we would be unclothed, but further clothed. In, in other words, I want more of God's blessing. In the life to come, in the new redeemed body, it is so much better than what we have right now. Because when we are further clothed, what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. There will be no more groaning, there will be no more burdens upon us. And, and this is challenging. This is so challenging because we live in a generation that loves the now. 
We love the temporary. We are the, the people of YOLO and FOMO. We have so many acronyms to describe our love of temporary things, right? We all have Twitter. We all have Instagram. We, we need to be instantly notified of the newest, hippest things. Every moment our phones ping, and I'm pinging right now, right? With the newest uh, news update, sports update, world news. Uh, if you're like my parents, the newest WhatsApp uh, warning of, of the newest scam that you have to be careful of, like whatever it is, it's just constant ping, 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 ping. We need to know. We need to know. We are people who live for the transient things, things that do not last. And Paul's pressing against this tendency. He says, there's better things than this. There's a better life than this. Do you not recognize that our groanings and our burdens are tied to this life only. Romans 8, it should sound very familiar, this passage, Romans 8, verse 22 to 25. There's also Paul speaking. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But what, but now, now hope that is seen is not hope for what hopes what he sees, but we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. That's a lot of groaning. Because there is a recognition, both from all of creation, all created things, and us as created beings, that this life that we live right now is marred by sin and death. And that's why we all groan together, groan for the creation to be redeemed in Jesus because even the created things which are good recognize that there is a better to come. We are limited in our goodness. That brings me back uh, a few years ago before co uh, COVID hit. Uh, my cousins and I planned a, a trip to Japan, and this was a long-awaited trip where, uh, you know, as kids, we, as kids we, we recognized our parents would never let us go to, you know, uh, on a cousin trip as kids. And so we told each other, when we were adults, we're going to save enough money we're going to go and just get away from them uh, and enjoy, you know, and we don't have to follow them to everything they want to take a picture at. And so we're like, we're going by ourselves. And so we went to Japan and we decided we're just going to have a blast. And so, you know, some of us went to get sushi at, at the famous market. Uh, I don't like fish. So I went to Disneyland with the other group uh, and we were like, yeah, this is fantastic. And it was fun. It was, it was so much fun to be at Tokyo uh, Disney uh, and you know, we're enjoying all the attractions and, and, and all the food and just the ambiance. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, we were at the little mermaid ride, uh, when one of us picked up their phone and looked at it and said, Hey, grandpa just died. It's a bizarre scene, isn't it? You're standing in the middle of Disneyland where manufactured happiness surrounds you and you're grappling with the effects of sin and death. Now, we didn't know what to do. We just stood there and cried. See, Paul is trying to make it clear to us. Yes, this life has much good to offer. And yes, we should enjoy those things. But there needs to be better than this life. Because this life isn't good enough. The transient is not good enough. The things don't last here. Even the happiest place on earth cannot 
lessen the sting of human mortality. This life is tied to groanings and burdens. We need better. And so he points us to the future where our house is not made with hands, but God awaits us, where life is swallowed up, or death, rather, is swallowed by, by life, where death doesn't reign forever. My friends, we, we need to be challenged. What do we have our eyes set on? The transient, temporary things, or the eternal? Are people who are future-oriented or focused on the now? One is clearly better than the other. One thing can be stolen, can be broken, can be taken away from us. The other cannot. Paul says we need a resurrection hope. We need the life to come. We need eternity with God. We need a life that reigns supreme. We, are, we need to be people of the future, my friends. If we are Christians, that is what we are called to look towards, to look towards what is to come. And that transforms us. It makes us people of the future. But it also makes us people of faith. As our second point, we are to be people of faith. Look at verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so God says, Paul says, God has reassured us of our hope, of our eternal resurrection hope, by giving us the Spirit as a guarantee. Right? And, and that word guarantee in the Greek is the same word used as uh, the engagement ring in Greek, in modern Greek. In other words, God is committed to you. God is committed to finishing what he has started in you. He is committed to making you new to redeeming you, to transform you. And so for Paul, he's saying, as each day I'm being transformed into the likeness of my God, I'm being reminded of the Spirit, even as my outer self is wasting away, that I will one day be completed. I will one day have this eternal body. Therefore, until he leads us to verse 6, therefore, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When he says we are of good courage, it means we are always confident. He says we are always confident. Now, that seems simple, right? And you might think, okay, yeah, great. As a Christian, I should be confident. I can accept that. That's fine. But think about what he's actually saying here. Because he says it, uh, we are of good courage in verse 6. He says we are of good courage in verse 8. But what are those tied to? The good courage in verse 6 is tied to being at home in the body, away from the Lord. Verse 8, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Both are tied to what is to come. Both are tied to the temporary nature of our current bodies. And he's saying, even as I'm wasting away, I'm still confident. I'm not just confident when things are good or when things are going my way. I'm confident when things are not going my way. I'm confident when I'm dying. I'm confident when I am breaking apart. I'm confident when I face my own mortality, even if I am afflicted. I am still confident because my God shows me. He confirms with me. He guarantees to me that I'm still being made new. See, if we are obedient Christians, my friends, what, these, what Paul is saying, we should live very unique, confident lives. Not in ourselves, not in our own abilities, 
not in the, the, the promise that someday we will always be successful or prosperous. No, we are confident in the promises of God. That no matter what we endure, no matter what we encounter, we can still hold fast to him and be assured that he will complete his work in us. You see, this courage, this confidence, this is what allows us to walk by faith and not by sight. That, that, that somewhat famous line, to walk by faith, not by sight, it's such a powerful thing. We recite it, we, we memorize it, we, we put it on our, on our Instagram handles, but, but what does it look like to actually walk by faith? And it's important to note there, it doesn't say, I, I will memorize by faith, or I will recite by faith. He says, I will walk by sight. I will live by, by, by faith, not sight, sorry. Uh, important distinction right there. To walk by faith, not by sight. What does it look like? What does it look like to walk by sight? Very simply, it's to believe in the delusion that we are in control. To believe that I'm in control of my own life, to rely on my own talents, my own abilities to solve every and every, any issue that may arise. And we love to walk by sight because it makes us feel in control, right? I'm in control of my own life. I see it. I, I have the answer. I have the solution and I can solve it. I am my own God. But what's the problem with sight? As someone who's had eyeglasses since first grade, I can tell you sight is temporary. Sight goes. Sight is tied to what is transient. Sight will be taken away. And Paul, Paul knows this very well. I mean, if, if you've read his other letters, you know that he always talks about this thorn in his side. He talks about this physical ailment that, that's been bothering him. Uh, in Acts and Galatians, right, there's, there's uh, not definitive proof, but, but there are, are, are clues that this is tied to him losing his eyesight. And so he knows very well how sight does not last. It can be taken and is transient. It's tied to his temporary body. It's not good enough to rely on. But to walk by faith is to say, God, you are in control. I am not. You are in control. I am not. It's to admit that we are simply human. And it's to recognize that when things are bleak, when things seem hopeless, we focus on the promises of God. We trust him. And we, we basically go to him and say, God, you're, you're the one who is God. I am not. And it's difficult. It's terrifying because the things that come to face us are oftentimes so, so big, so beyond our control. I mean, you just look back to the Old Testament. Think of Noah, right? God comes to him and says, I'm going to flood this planet, build a boat. It's not as simple as going on Amazon and clicking, I, I will buy a boat, buy with one click. He had to build that thing. He had to look out every day and, and, and wonder, well, when, when's this flood coming? Yet he built it. He, he trusted God. He says, I don't see these waters coming. I don't know when it's coming, but I'm just simply going to trust you. I'm going to walk by faith. Or Abraham, when God came to him and said, hey, you know that only son you love who I gave you as a miracle when you were over 100 years old? He said, yeah, God, sacrifice him. Abraham said, okay. There was no promise that I'm going to send a ram caught in the thicket to take his place. Yet he trusted God's character. He said, God will provide a way. I'm just going to trust him. I'm going to do what he told me to do. I will walk by faith, not by sight. Moses, 
stuttering Moses, fearful Moses, go, go to the strongest king, the, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, the strongest army. Tell them to free my people. And Moses, after a lot of prodding, said, okay, I'll go. There's no promise of the ten plagues. There's no promise of splitting the Red Sea or, or causing water to come from the rocks or, or to see manna coming from, from heaven or quail to be walking around. There, there's no promise of those things. He just said, I'll, I'll trust you, God. He walked by faith, not by sight. My friends, what would it look like for you to walk by faith and not by sight? How about with your children? For parents, what would it look like for you to walk by faith and not by sight with your children? I, I have so many friends who, who wanted to go into the mission field. Right, they, they felt called by God. I, I want to live my life to, to proclaim the name of Jesus to the world. And yet they were told by their parents, that makes no sense. There's no money. It's dangerous. I put you in Kumon. Like, don't waste my money. You better become an engineer or a lawyer, at, at, you know, doctor. Come on. Let's be reasonable. Be logical. I didn't put you through college so you can go waste it away on the mission field. We had youth come through our program who said, I feel called by God to go into ministry. And there were well-intentioned parents said, no, there's no future there. It's hard. You're not paid well. No one will thank you. Go into the, the secular workforce. And here's the thing, no judgment. I get it. I have a child of my own now. I, I understand. <laughs> you want the best for your child. You want them not to suffer. Yet is that walking by sight or by faith? Do you trust that God's plans are good for your child? Do you trust that he can plan better than we can for our child? That he's called them to more than what we can see? Or how about your career? What would it look like for you to walk by faith in your career? Right? We've been working with the high school seniors, helping them think through their career paths as they you know, go through their college life. And, and here's the thing, there's so many good options, so many safe options that promise uh, job security and wealth and comfort. And, and the question that most of them have never asked is, what is God calling me towards? How has God uniquely shaped me to bring him glory in my profession? And we're challenging them. You have to think about those things before you get there. You got to start now. As, as adults, as very rational, logical people, have you thought, my friends, not by sight, but by, but by faith, how has God called you in your profession to serve him. I understand there are good jobs out there. Tech jobs are fantastic. Free food, free doctor, free bowling alley, whatever you want it, they have it. That's wonderful. Engineering, solid backup. But my question is not what, is your what do your parents want you to do, but what does God want you to do? What is he calling you towards? How will you honor him with your work? Or with your finances? All right, this is a pressure point for many of us because we were taught, many of us were taught to be smart with our money, which is a wise thing. That's a good thing. Right? I'm not going to tell you to be unwise with your money, but I fear that many of us are far too guilty of being, lack of better terms, greedy, selfish with our money. I, I say so myself with my own finances, right? We give, but only if it's easy. 
We give if it doesn't hurt. We give if we have enough. We give if it doesn't affect my way of life. And don't worry, I'm not going to pass an offering basket around after this. But I ask you to consider, what would it look like for you to handle your finances for the glory of God? All right, to give sacrificially and out of a heart that longs to honor God with what he has given to you. It reminds me of the, the moment where Jesus and his disciples are watching the poor widow putting her two last copper coins to God while also watching the rich drop in bags of money and, and for Jesus to say, emulate that woman who put in her last two copper coins. And it's hard for us to think. Like, yeah, we think, yeah, that's a great story. It's so inspiring, but that's not me. I got to be smart with it. If I have two coins, one is going to God. The other one is going towards my next meal because I don't want to die. That's logical. I can hear my parents in my head. Save your money. But what does God call us to? Don't give because it's comfortable. Don't give God what you have left over. What does faith say? What does it look like to live by faith, to walk by faith with my money? Where's their need? Who can I help? What has God called me to do with my money? I fear that we suffer in our, our witness to the world because we, the Western church, oftentimes are far, far too willing to walk by sight with our money than with our tend to walk by faith. What would it look like to walk by faith with your life, with your time, with the time that you've been given? Right? In what ways is God calling you to obedience? What ways is he challenging you to live more for, for him than for your comfort or your success? Right? And where, have you, where have you felt the Spirit pushing and pulling you to live differently? And it's, it's very easy to tell. You don't have to read tea leaves. You don't have to go outside when the stars are seen to see, where is God calling me to? No, the, the God, God calls you to honor him with your, with your life. It's very clear. You recognize as you grow in your relationship with him what he wants for you, what he doesn't want for you. That's the same of every relationship. And you begin to realize what makes him happy, what makes him sad. And it causes us to desire to please him. See, our church, as someone who grew up here, we, we don't lack biblical knowledge. We, not, we lack biblical life. I can ask most of you, what does God call us to? You guys can answer very well. But my question and Paul's question is, are you living it out? Are you giving him your life? Are you actually living for him? Are you seeking to please him? Are you seeking to please yourself? Share the gospel. We know that. But there are repercussions. You might get canceled. Live boldly with the life that you've been given. But God, there's so much I need to get done. I, I need to pour into my 401k. There's investments. Give your time freely. Right? You hear you're like, I think there are many needs. You might be wondering, oh, oh, but but I don't know where to go. Let me help you with that. Don't worry. All right. Children's, youth, uh, snap, uh, camtoons, uh, worship, ushering. I can go on and on. There's no bias there, all right? But where does he call you to? I mean, props to, to some of the people who are serving in our, our afternoon program with Nate. We got, we got high schoolers coming from after school. They're not coming with their parents. They're, they're jumping on a bus after school to come and serve our youth. They're not getting paid. They're simply coming because they want to serve. We have retirees who are my Sunday school teachers coming to give up their free time 
to serve. <laughs> you can do it too. Live sacrificially. Live in a way that gives up of what you hold dearly. And my friends, here's the thing. To live in this way is to live recklessly. If the world is right. If the transient is what matters. But it's not, is it? That's why we can send off David and Lorraine. If you see them give up all that they have built up here. Family, friends, a stable job. To say, I'm going to give my life, I'm going to take my girls over there to live for the glory of God in a place I do not know. A place where I do not know anyone. There's no security. But we're walking by faith, not by sight. What is he calling you to, my friends? Finally, we are to be people of fear. And let me explain that, because ultimately, we are to be people who are driven by healthy fear, and this is a wonderful thing. Look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul places us before the judgment seat of God. Right? He said, it doesn't matter if we live or die. Our aim is singular, and that is to please God with our lives, to please him, because we must all appear before him. He makes it very clear. We will be judged for what we do. We will receive rewards for what we do. In other words, it matters how we live today. And he's very clear. He's talking to believers here. He's not talking to non-believers. So he's not talking about salvation. All right. He's saying we are saved, but as Christians, we will come before his judgment seat and either receive rewards or judgment. And this is why we make it our aim to please him because there are consequences. Now, we may not like this idea, especially the modern uh, believer. We may look at this idea of a judging God and, and, and kind of like, you know, viscerally react like, what? How can a loving God be, be judgmental? How can he be a judging God? But I, I challenge you to think, you want a judging God. You want a God who is righteous, who will actually punish injustice punish wickedness, punish evil. It is not, it is not a good thing to have a, a God who allows injustice to endure, to go unpunished. That is not a loving God, but we need a God who is righteous and judging. He will punish evil, and that is a good thing. And that's why we can go to sleep at night, even when we feel we are unjustly wronged by this world knowing that it is not unseen, but rather seen by our God, and he will, he will right every wrong. And that's why, that's why we make it our aim to please him. In other words, that's why we fear him. That's why we fear God. And what we have here is a description of what it looks like to fear God. It's not just talking about terror, although terror has a place. There, there's a right terror before God when we recognize who he is, what he is capable of, how mighty he is, and for us to rightly bow down and get on our knees and say, you are God, I'm not. You could destroy me in a millisecond, and yet, God, I recognize that you don't, in your mercy and just your kindness, your grace to me. But to fear God is to have a proper understanding of who he is and then to live in accordance, 
It is to say, you are king, you are Lord, you are judge, and I will obey. I will submit myself to you. I will be accountable to you. Yes, Jesus is a friend. I know that is a uh, mentality we like to have, and it's true. He is our friend. But do not forget, he is also king and judge over all. He is God. He, lo- he, he judges the living and the dead, and Paul understands this. And this fear of God is what drives him to live to please the Lord with every aspect of who he is. My friends, do you fear him? Do you fear him? And it's easy to ask yourself who you fear. The question you need to ask yourself is who do you please? Who do you live to please? That is your God. Because that's the one you have put yourself before as king and judge over yourself. And for many of us, it's us. (laughs) It's ourselves. We live to please ourselves and we fear ourselves before God. And Proverbs tell tell us the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? Fear God. Meaning to not fear God is foolishness. Friends, if we fear him, we will obey him. And if we obey him, we will please him. And the amazing thing is, this is what it looks like to walk by faith. To know that one day we will be made new again, we will be redeemed. We will no longer be burdened by this temporary life. And we, have, we will be given in that day a life that will never be taken from us ever again. This is how we are to live boldly, to live with confidence, because that's our blessed assurance that is eternal. Let me pray for us. God, we, we need your help. We need your help to, to live boldly, to live fearlessly, to live with confidence in the gospel. It's so easy for us to get caught up living for ourselves, living to please ourselves, living to chase the temporary things of this life, but yet you've given us a better way, a better life, a better eternity to long for. And God, as as we, the church, are have the ability to look around and see the temporary nature of this life? Would we be led to long for redemption? Would we long to be with you? Would we long for what is to come more than what we long for the things in front of our eyes? God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for being gracious and merciful to us. Teach us what it looks like to follow you, God, and to live by faith and not by sight. Pray this in your son's name.